Welcome back, Hemming Brainiacs, to the Hemming Brainiac List podcast. We're talking about <clears throat> chapter 12 and chapter 13, the first half of chapter 13, um, of book three of Hail and Farewell, which is the last book in the Hemingway List. And I say that because we've got a, a chapter and a half to go, and then we're finished. And you know what? I'm going to read that tonight. First of all, I was very surprised. I thought this. I thought book three had 19 chapters, so I thought we had five days left. But I read the Roman numerals wrong, and it has 14 chapters. So I'm an idiot. But that was a pleasant surprise, because <clears throat> turns out we've got one and a half chapters left, which is fantastic news. Now, it's one and a half quite big chapters, so it's going to be a long reading. I'm going to try to do it tonight. Now, any other book in the whole world, what I would do here is read the rest of chapter 13, the second half of chapter 13, and then tomorrow have the last ever episode with the last ever chapter. It's a bit untidy to have the final episode being one and a half chapters, starting, you know, halfway through the previous chapter. But this book doesn't deserve anything more than that. Each chapter is formless. Each chapter has no point to it, no structure, no format whatsoever. It's, as uh, well, according to the discussion prompt from yesterday, it's utter horseshit. Uh, at the end of yesterday's episode, I flipped my lid. I, cr- I just flipped out because the what we were reading, it's like, the you know, it's the final pages of the book. <clears throat> you know, the last last little stretch it's meant to all round round off you know come to a nice finish wrap things up nicely but it's just nonsense it's just utter rubbish there's no sense of it being the end of a book it's just like it's like the whole book has just been the floodgates open out comes a load of horse shit and at some point it's just gonna stop and that's it um so i just could not believe that someone would be this close to the end of their own autobiography and still just be making no point whatsoever. It's uh, very frustrating. Anyway, <clears throat> whatever. It is a real shame that we're finishing on what is far and away the worst book on the Hemingway list. Um, it, it's what the worst book I've ever read. Hands down. Now, the Hemingway list, when I just reflect back on it, and I'm going to do another podcast. I'm going to do one more episode. It won't be tomorrow. Um, You know, it'll be in a week or so, but I will drop one more episode um, as a bit of a thinking back on the Hemingway list, you know. Um, There might even be two episodes. There might be one. We usually do a wrap-up episode to talk about the book, so I guess we'll do that. Uh, and then a little bit later on, there'll be a just a reflecting on the pro, on the project podcast. But those episodes <clears throat> won't be daily. You know, I'm not I'm not gonna. Like, today ends the daily podcasting. Essentially, is what I'm saying, and I'm wrapped, absolutely wrapped. I have been doing this for one thousand nine hundred and forty three days. Um, of daily podcasting. And yeah, there's been the odd day here or there where I've missed a day uh, or we had a you know a week off here and there 
very, very scarcely though. That was, <clears throat> the project was started five and a half years ago. Five and a half years ago, and we've done 1,943 episodes. Now, that is 5.32 years of daily podcasting, and we started five and a half years ago. So, yeah, in all that time, you can see we only took off a week here or there, missed a day here, a minute there, but really it's been a daily habit for me. Um, now, this last book has sucked so bad. I've just really not enjoyed it. So it has been the bane of my existence, which makes me even more want to get to the end. But also, this project has run its course, you know? Like, the whole point was to read every book in the Hemingway list. That's what we're going to do by the end of this episode. We'll have finished that. Um, yeah. And then that's it. Um, so, anyway, look. We'll just focus on this last episode, this last chapter. Um, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm going to have a whole episode dedicated to just reflecting on this process and talking about sort of how it feels to be finished, what it means to me to be finished, and um, hopefully get some, some really good comments and every, everything from you know anyone who's been in part of this along the way. I guess without further ado, as they say, oh, I did want to point out one line, and I think it might have been from the previous chapter. I'm not going to go back and find it, but it was essentially something like this. Her death was the worst thing that ever happened to me. And I just feel like that summarizes this guy so much. Her death was the worst thing that ever happened to me. That's him. That's George Moore. Like every everything is so egocentric um, that he he's just can't see beyond his own eyelids. Um, I hate this guy. I hate this book. Let's keep reading. Chapter thirteen, second half goes like this: by side windows, and the drip. The rain would have to go somewhere. On our way to the bathroom, he explained how the drip might be mitigated here. He said, is the bathroom? And I answered, tis well, but the great 18th century knew no, not bathrooms, and we talked of the footpans and the bidets that once formed part of the furniture of every bedroom and the disrepute into which bathing had fallen since Roman times all through the Middle Ages until Anglo-Indians reintroduced the habit of the thorough washing of the body into Europe. From the bathroom window, we caught sight of the ruined privy under the beech trees to which our ancestors were wont to adjourn in the morning, their pipes in their mouths to talk the news. And the news has, was always of a racehorse or a duel or a hunt. We have improved upon those times, yet our neighbours still allow their dogs to deposit eau d'eau upon our doorsteps in London. And whilst I meditated on humanity's slow advancement, the colonel told me that he had chosen my father's dressing room for the bathroom. I never should have had the courage to make that change. So real is my memory of the kitchen as it stood in my father's lifetime, himself seated at the great bureau, full of countless drawers at which he wrote his letters, or standing before the toilet table between the windows covered with cut glass files of Marcassar oil. Pots and... Bears grease, many kinds of ivory brushes, tortoiseshell combs of all sorts and sizes, some destined for the hair of the head, some for the whiskers, relics of the days of his dandyhood, for he must have been a great dandy when Anonymous turned a shoe at Liverpool and Coruna won the Chester Cup. He liked me to come into his dressing room to talk to him while he lathered his face, and I remember to the lie I told him, 
when he asked me if I had used the top of his silver shaving pot to knock in a nail, and his alarm when I stumbled over the long S's in Grandfather's edition of Burke's speeches. I have forgotten his reproofs to me, but can still see him in my thoughts opening the green baize door, and can almost hear him communicating the direful tidings to my mother. She, as she showed little or no alarm, the governess was sent for, and it was put to them. Had they ever known or heard of a child of seven who could not read Burke's speeches without faltering in an edition printed with the long S's? Before Miss Westbury had time to answer, my mother said that she didn't believe that any child of seven could read the long S's without faltering, and I can recall his long mouth speaking through the latter, telling me that when he was three, he used to read the Times aloud to his mother at breakfast. My mother's incredulity exasperated him. He ordered my uh, governess and me to the schoolroom, and for days we sat reading a very different indifferent history of England by one Lingard. We listened with apprehension while Joseph Appley brushed the master's silk hats and arranged his gloves for him in the hall, and we breathed more freely when we heard that the hall door clang. <clears throat> for we knew then that he had gone to the stables to run his fingers down the horse's forelegs, and our hope was that this his interest in the morning gallops would help him to forget my lessons. We passed the door of the room to which my mother had taken me to pray by the deathbed. It had not been in use since mother's death. The colonel was with her. He had probably seen her die, and I suppose that that was why he had chosen for himself the two rooms at the end of the passage, rooms that I recollected as grandmother's rooms, and after visiting them he threw open the door of the summer room, a pretty room, opening on the balcony that the four great pillars support, and in an instant the room returned to what it had been forty years before, my father sitting at the rosewood table in the evening, drinking a large cup of tea, telling me stories of Egypt and the Dead Sea, Baghdad, the Euphrates and the Ganges, stories of monkeys and alligators and hippopotami, stories that a boy loves. We left the room to go to... <coughs> to the rooms that were once grandfather's library. <clears throat> the colonel had turned them into bedrooms. Grandfather's spirit seems still to animate these rooms, I said. The colonel did not answer, and then I seemed to apprehend something that had hitherto escaped me. More whole had always seemed alien and remote to me because it was pervaded by the minds of those that preceded me. My grandfather and grandmothers were underground, but along the landings, and in the large rooms opening on the passages, I seemed to be aware of Grandfather sitting by me, wondering how it was that his grandson should practice so familiar a style, one so unlike Gibbon. I should always be engaged in imaginary dialogues, I said, telling him he did not always like write like Gibbon, but like me in his preface of to the French Revolution, and that the preface is the best part of it, if you were to say that, he said the Count, we, he would answer, but you haven't read my history of the French Revolution. I asked myself if the Colonel intended to reproach. After luncheon, he proposed to show me the garden, but I could barely see it. So clear was my memory of the old 18th century garden, with its rows of <coughs> espalier apple trees and four great walnut trees, each in one plot. The two great ilex trees whose branches leaned in front of the turret were gone. The turret was in ruins, and the colonel had felled 
a good many beach along a 20-foot wall to get light and air for his fruit trees. I was sorry for these, but nothing grows under them, he explained, and led me round his peach and pear and apple and cherry trees, and while he explained the different varieties, I dreamed of the sweet briar hedge that divided my mother's flower garden from the plots in which we had once grown potatoes, cabbages, onions, spinach, chives, parsnips, cauliflowers, beans, asparagus. The asparagus bed was never a great success because of the walnut trees which my father would not allow to be felled, his mother having planted them. Even more distinct is my memory than those trees was a great apple tree, a very venerable tree, moss-grown and carious. It stood up a little beyond the flower walk, and near it, tucked away in a corner, was a dense growth of raspberry bushes enclosed by a thick hedge. A dangerous place in my imagination, one in which witches and other evil spirits were to be met, but the fruit tempted me. And my governess once boxed my ears for having hidden myself among the raspberries, and then we came upon the ruins of the greenhouse from which we used to steal the grapes, even when the door was kept locked and my father once beat me with a horsewhip for breaking the pane, and now elderly men, both of us, the colonel and I, stood there at a large cutstone chimney that the colonel have... I had saved in case I should care to rebuild the greenhouse again. Cut stone is very expensive, he said, but in our grandfather's days, labour was cheaper, and we passed into the stables, none of which had fallen. There was the box in which Croft Patrick neighed when the boy brought his sieve full of corn. How he plunged his muzzle into it, and for he was greedy feeder and ready to kick anyone that came near him till the last grain was licked up in the next box. I had seen Master George, one of the best horses of this year, <clears throat> only a few pounds behind Croft Patrick at a mile and a half, and his superior two miles, a terrible buck jumper that would have dislodged any cowboy. The little ponies that these horsemen ride have not sufficient strength to throw them out of the high Mexican saddles, but Master George was sixteen hands and a half, and when his head disappeared between his legs it was not so it was no easy thing to keep on a six pound saddle and the tightest might have been flung out of it as i was three times one morning before breakfast these falls irritated my father scarcely less than the dog than the longs had done eight years before compelling him to declare that no horse could unseat him joseph aptly smiled and went out of the room the next morning my father was thrown in front of the house by the holly trees breaking his collarbone and the doctor had to be sent for the colonel started to enumerate wolf's dog anonymous and karuna have just dragged hay out of those very racks he said and the coach horse recalled the coach hung on leather straps in the great phaeton likewise on leather straps which hardly ever went out a museum piece it was and the tiny phaeton in which our mother used to drive primrose and ivory, a beautiful pair of ponies that great fur at the back of the stable in front of the hayrick, reminded me of the day that Joseph Appley took me out for a walk and taught me a little bird lore. The nest, nest he showed me at the end of the bow was a goldfinch's, and we explored the woods together, and far clearer than today is that fragment, fragrant morning by the hawthorn tree, all in flower, Joseph lifting me up to sea into the blackbird's nest, and I remember his voice. You mustn't touch the eggs, Master George, or the bird will forsake her nest. But how will the bird know? Let's try. We must go back, Master George. And if you return at once, at one, we shall get home in time for dinner. Let's go a little further, Joseph, and find more nests, I cried, for it didn't seem to me 
that I should ever want dinner again. But of what was Colonel thinking? He is like his father, discreet, therefore not a man of letters, and was talked about the foreign furs which our father had planted in the sixties, and they seemed to me to be out of keeping with the landscape. Deodas may be suited to India, I said, and the Wellingtonia may be well enough for California, but here they are detestable and far worse than the Deodar, and the Wellingtonia is the cypress loss something, a tree of vile habit sending down branches to take root, creating a little jungle, and Colonel admitted the habit, which he could not well deny, be, but he could not be persuaded to send round for a couple of hatchets, urging the felling trees is not the light work that I imagined it to be, the real reason being that he is as averse as I am from felling a tree, an aversion inherent in every sensitive nature one might almost say in every nature except the woodcutter's habit has blunted his. He has forgotten the original instinct of tree worship and perceives no longer the mystery of the vast, vasty height sprung out of the single seed. It was a while I was thinking these things, that the great rules of the farmyard rose up through the beech trees, 18 or 20 feet high, enclosing buildings of all kinds, stables for the many cart horses, granaries, barns, haggards, buyers, smithies. A great deal of cut stone had been used in these buildings, and the colonel had saved many pieces from the ruins of the smithy, and these, he said, would come in useful when the time came to rebuild the farmyard. I liked to hear him dreaming of his dreams while I meditated the question. Whether it were crueler to fell an ox or a tree, behind that wall I had seen death for the first time, and with that kind of morbid pleasure which one feels in wounding oneself, I recalled how the shepherd had come one day into the yard driving half a dozen sheep before him, and how, stopping in my play, I asked him why he had brought them all to the fields, from the fields. He answered me that Friday was always killing day, and putting out his crook, he caught the sheep by the leg and felt for the fat, but not being satisfied with the animal, he allowed it to escape from him. Again, he put out his crook and caught another, and again, he was not satisfied. Three or four sheep were tried. It may have been over the fourth that he mothered, muttered, this one will do, and let it into the corner. He and his boy stretched it on the slightly raised platform. And I asked why a bucket was placed under its head to catch the blood, Master George. The shepherd answered, as, the she as he sharpened his knife. All this ritual was so enticing that I waited impatiently and marvelled how it was that the sheep accepted death without a bleat, looking at us all the time with round, peaceful eyes, in which one could rather read neither love of life, nor fear of death, nor reproach. At last the eyes began to glaze, and I asked the shepherd, he had begun to die, and the shepherd pressed the sheep all over with his great strong fingers, urging the blood out of the wound in the neck. A few days later, we were stopped in our walk by strange squealings and scanting, scenting death. We appealed to the peasant, and he told us the butcher was killing pigs. We ran up from the sheep all over his great strong... F uh, we ran from our governess to see the kill pigs killed, we hid from her in a stable and did not venture out till she had given up the search. I'm afraid you're late. He's a goner by this time, the peasant called after us, and when we arrived at the farmyard, the carcass was being cut up and salted, and it would be some time before the butcher would be ready for another. The colonel was a little diffident, uncertain whether he should stay to see a pig killed, or but perhaps ashamed to go lest I might laugh at him. I took on authoritative airs, and bade the men hurry, returning now and again to the dung heap to watch the pigs. There were eleven or twelve rooting and rolling. Happy for the warm May sunlight caressed their sides, and apparently the screams of their fellow now passed away into salt pork had not disturbed 
them. Standing by them, I picked up the biggest to be taken next, a pig-headed animal that contested every yard of the way, two rustics dragging him, and myself applying an ash stick as a goad to his rump, and so cruelly that one of the rustics begged me to desist. He was bleeding under the tail when he was hoisted to the platform, and I felt ashamed of my cruelty, but he was a vicious brute that would have bitten the butcher had it not been for the rope around his snout. The butcher worked his knife slowly through the neck, and I applied him with questions. Why was it that pigs squealed when they were being killed and sheep died without uttering a bleat? Was it because it hurt pigs more to die than it did to sheep? The butcher answered the pigs were noisy devils. Somebody else added that they liked music. The bagpipes especially. Answers that perplexed me. And I stood watching the blood, noting that it was flowing. The squeals grew fainter and fainter. Dead he seemed such a stupid thing that I began to wish him alive again. My governess came into the cow yard, saying she had been looking for us everywhere. Our dinner was ready and we must come at once, but we haven't got the bladder yet. The butcher put his hand into the pig, tore it out and handed it to us, all stinking, our governess begging us to relinquish it. But we explained to her that we were going to blow it out and tie it to the end of a stick. We shall want two more bladders to beat each other with, I explained, and hurried the colonel through his dinner. I would have brought my sister to the farmyard, where still some more pigs wallowed in the dung heap outside Fright's stable, waiting the great experience of their lives, the butcher's knife. Fright was a very handsome thoroughbred horse. He had won some big races, the Kessar Witch, I think, and had gone to the stud with a deformed foreleg. My father was sure Fright would get winners if he were given them right mares, and the horse stood at Moor Hall for many years at ten pounds for thoroughbred mares. Five for half-breads. The groom's fee was, I think, the same in every case. Five shillings, and it was a very well-earned five shillings for fright. Needed a great deal of coaxing and encouragement before he showed any interest in the mare waiting for him in the yard outside his box. And he would certainly have gone to the knackers if he had not neighed at the sight of some cart mares at Pat Kelly as Pat Kelly was bringing him home from exercise. And seeing that the mares were in the horse's mind, Pat began to tell me how he had spoken in the horse's ear. I was all ear, but Pat became reticent suddenly, and I was left pondering on the mystery of the continuous existence of life in this world. I had been told, as every child is told, that babies were found under gooseberry bushes and had accepted the explanation for some years. But between the ages of 10 and 12, this explanation seemed hardly worthy of a boy's serious credence, and I had accepted that only other possible solution, that the female produced children unaided and had begun to regret my sex, when Pat Kelly's words made life seem worth living again, and not to find myself lacking when my day came, I used to hide in the carpenter's shop, the carpenter shop being next to the fright stable, and so that I might hear Pat encouraging the horse with all kinds of coaxing, that old boy, that's the old man, and sometimes with so little effort, effect that Pat's mouth would grow dry and he would curse the horse, and after cursing him, he would start another set of coaxings, at the end of which perhaps the horse would be led out of the stable. It was then time for me to run out of the carpenter's shop and climb into one of the beech trees overlooking the yard. One day I succeeded in persuading the colonel to come with me, and that was the very day that Pat pointed out us out to our father, who called us to us to come 
down and caned the colonel severely. With all these memories flocking through my mind, it was sad to see the carpenter's shop in ruins, for in it I had spent many days with Mickey Murphy, trying to learn to use the chisel, the plane, and the saw, but to no purpose did I labour, for I was without handicraft, less gifted than the carpenter's son. The colonel had never collected hatchets and hammers, saws and chisels, planes and gouges, files and augers and gimlets, and perhaps that is why he had brought, bought an old sawmill in Bellum Robe and established it in a corner of the Haggard, where once upon a time there used to be great sport ferreting rats in the wheat sack stacks, built upon short stone pillars about three feet from the ground, with a slab on the top to keep out the rats. But a mischievous boy, preferring a rick full of rats to his father's grain, will leave a plank for them to climb, and when threshing day comes, the rats will scurry before a ferret with the dogs in full tilt after them, and if perchance a curious dog should try to appreciate the smells of rat and ferret and get his nose bitten, he will cry, you know better next time, Towser. Outside the barn was a curious old threshing machine, two horses yoked to a great beam where the motive power and these set going within a little stone circle all kinds of wheels and cogwheels, and in response the winnowing machine inside the barn clattered, and when I came to see how the work was progressing, the women smiled upon me as they fed it with sheaves, asking me not to come too near, lest I should have my fingers chopped. When the threshing machine went out of gear, the flail was flung, and dodging the thresher's weary flinging tree i would snatch a handful of grain and throw it to the finches waiting in the fir trees on the hillside not out of kindness of heart but to entice them to their death for they assembled in sufficient numbers and were pecking unmindful of danger two barrels of a fowling piece were loosed upon them and the ground was quickly covered with blood and feathers a boy must learn to shoot, and whilst learning he fires at blackbirds and thrushes on the lawn and the jackdaws as they hover about the chimneys and the magpies as they fly from thorn to thorn, and the gulls flapping about the lake shore and shot it again and again. Gulls will dive after a wounded gull, and so the sportsman has a chance of shooting gulls till his heart sickens. And then wandering from the shore into the woods, he will shoot a squirrel, a badger, a raven, hawks and owls. He considers it his duty to loosen a pond, and wood pigeons too, for they are greedy birds, and the farmer does not reap where he has sown. A boy lusts to kill, he will set dogs after a cat. And one day a very beautiful white cat was hunted out of the laundry into the loft, and then out of the loft, and when the cat escaped by a broken window, the dogs were set after her, and when Puss crossed the road, the dogs in hot pursuit, she was forced to take one of the trees growing out of the shelving hillside. The laundry maids come running down to the road, pleading for their cat, but the barbarous boy climbed the tree and shook her out of the branches, and in imitation of a huntsman, pulled out a knife and cut off the cat's head and distributed the flesh, treating the cat as if she were a wild animal, a hare or a rabbit, whose function it is to provide us with sport as well as food. You would like to see the stone park, the colonel said the name, of the field awakened a memory pleasanter than the infamous hunting of the cat, a gathering of nuts. One summer evening, a long ago, with the laundry maids and the stable boy, perhaps there is nothing that takes a deeper hold on memory than the drawing down of bows laden with fruit in dusk of the dead day. We had gathered till strange shadows began to move about the fairy ring, spared by my father when he set to work to redeem the stone park from the hazel, more acres being needed for the growing of oats. So numerous were the racehorses at Moor Hall at this time, the corn prosperous in the virgin soil, and the great crop was expected, but our horses got none of it. 
for our pea fowl had encamped in the middle of the field, leaving only a fringe, and the villagers muttered when the birds took to their heels or their wings. The master would have done well not to have meddled with the good people. The good people seemed to have recovered their holding, I said to myself, whilst seeking the road that our father had built, but all trace of it was lost in the jungle of blackthorn and hazel. Our meaning was the well, all of the great park that had once extended round Castle Kara, and whilst the colonel narrated his plans for the second riding of the stone park by means of dynamite, I heard him break off the middle of a sentence, the goats again, and away he went with thirty or forty goats trotting in front of him. It was... Just as I suspected, said he a little later, they fed on green boughs during the summer, but just as this time of the year they come over the deer park wall in search of grass. He told me that he had thought of shooting them, but was afraid of to raise hatred against himself in the country, for the goats were not altogether wild. For certain, somebody had a claim upon them, and he continued talking, but for a long time my thoughts were among the days when we clambered the deer park wall and wandered to castle Kara, a great stronghold in the 15th and 16th centuries abandoned so it was said in the 17th or later the descendants of the great chieftains having gone to live in the modern house now a ruin like the castle in the 60s a herdsman lived in a corner of it we bought goat's milk from him and how good it was in the noggins foaming over the brims and circumstances of the abandonment of the castle must have been wonderful. Or was it abandoned by degrees? At one time all the headland was fortified, but this, this vast castle little remains except the central tower or fort, now grown about with thorn and hazel. My mother's want was to repeat verses from Maramon as we passed under the gateway and our tablecloth was laid on the grease, grassy space which we believed to be the ancient banqueting hall above us were glimpses of staircases built between the walls on one day I climbed up the wall and mounted the stairs but the chieftains had left neither treasure nor pistols nor swords behind them we might do a little clearing every year the colonel broke in and all the trees that we got get out of the stone park can be cut up by the sawmill creating a provision for fuel for the house and in 10 or 12 years we shall find we have added many acres of arable land to the estate aren't you listening yes i'm listening and i think you're right in about 10 or 12 years more hall will have returned to the more hall of before times but have you been to castle Kara lately he had visited castle Kara some three or four months ago and the castle was crumbling last christmas there had been a great downfall the old gateway had well nigh disappeared and he did not think the castle itself would be more than 50 years the great modern and quasi-modern house to which the chieftains repaired was when private wars were no longer recognised as lawful in his passing away, he said even more rapidly than a castle, I found pieces of the great stone fox that stood in the middle of the courtyard and the two hounds, one on either side of the brushwood. Another thing, Castle Island needs repair. Michael Malia was on the island last summer and he tells me that the base of the old castle is insecure but that a few pounds would make it safe. My dear Morris, it is sad to see ancient Ireland passing away before our eyes, but we cannot rebuild ancient Ireland, and it is clear to me that as I must soon go, I am gone, Moorhole will be pulled down to build cottages in Darrenany and Ballyholly, or the house will become a monkery or a nunnery. Which would you prefer? The colonel sought refuge in the silence, and I read a melancholy that overspread his face and abandonment of the family property and the priest's prelacy was distasteful to him, and now that the lulee was given to bell and fodder the monks, what he said, I said to myself, be, be more willing than he was some years ago to allow me to bring up one of his children in a Protestant, a condition, of course, that I left in the more hall I had written to him once on the very subject, and the answer that reached me in Paris, a very angry letter, was characterising 
my proposal proposal is infamous and outrageous. He should be. Why should my proposal be looked upon as infamous and disgraceful? I had asked myself, and I began to ask myself again the same question. He may, I said, think differently now. Circumstances have changed more. So over the proposal might be to put him again in conversation. Words pass rapidly. There is no time for anger if they've been dealt with skillfully. And I thought how after dinner when his wife had gone to bed and we were sitting in two armchairs before the turf fire, I might begin to comp- by complaining that now the Stella and Walter Osborne and Hughes were gone, Dublin had become a little too small for me. He would ask me whether I was going to London or Paris. Paris would introduce Darjan's name, and I would tell him that Darjan's ambitions were to found a new religion in which there was no dogma, only right. The colonel would shrug at his shoulders and ask how right could exist independently of dogma, and I would answer that there was no dogma in ancient religions. The colonel would answer Judaism, and I would explain incidentally that the Jews had never indulged in heresy hunting, and I was not permitted to insult Jehovah, and anybody who did so was condemned to death, as Socrates was condemned for insulting the gods' dogma and its incommitment. Heresy hunting arose when the, what Pope founded the Holy Order, the Reformation, would be mentioned, and it would be an easy transition from the Reformation to my proposal. We make these plans, but very rarely do we adhere to them, and after dinner when we two were sitting in the drawing room with prelude or introductory matter of any kind i said my dear maurice i have a proposal to make to you i am quite willing to pay for the education of your eldest son or to leave any property of the pictures and the remain after my death but i should like to bring him up a protestant our family is a protestant family there are one or two apostates, it is true, but I should never consent to what you are proposing. You needn't go on. I'm sorry for that, of course. It is impossible for you to deny that Catholicism makes it for illiteracy. As I have pointed out again and again, Catholicism has hardly produced a book worth reading since the Reformation, but I deny that completely. It doesn't suit you to admit it, but this you will admit, that if Catholicism degrades, corrodes, paralyzes, and stupefies the intelligence, its day is over. I admit that if your premise be correct, but I deny your premises. To die on I is easy, but if I, if what I say be not true, if Catholics have written as well as agnostics and Protestants, the books are known, name them. At the end of a long waste of argument, I said, well, you are convinced that the Catholic is equal to the Protestant, why not bring the matter to the test? Do you bring up one of your sons Catholic, I will bring up the other Protestant and bring back him to the superior of the Catholic boy to the extent of £500. I'll be generous. If I win, I'll give the 500 to the Catholic as a sort of consolation prize. The proposals you are making to me are utterly unacceptable and horrible. I can't think of anything more detestable than that I should give you one of my children to be brought up in a religion of which I disapprove and that I should be tempted to do this by a promise that you will leave him money. If later on my children were to tell me that they preferred Protestantism to Catholicism, I don't say that I shouldn't be sorry, but I should do nothing to prevent them from following the religion which they wish to follow. But if they were to change their religion in order to inherit property or to get money, I should hate the very sight of them. But my dear Maurice... Nobody except Cardinal Newman ever changed his religion for theological reasons. All changes of religion are brought by the pecuniary or sexual reasons. The colonel did not answer. He lay back on his armchair white with passion. The first time I had ever seen him lose his temper since he was a little boy, I would have been easier to let the matter drop, but I had determined to make a last attempt to save the boy and could not stop halfway. You told me I libeled my great-grandfather when I hinted that he became a Catholic because it was impossible to marry, carry on a business in Spain as a Protestant, and I say so still, but we're not talking now of our great-grandfather but of our children. But you know that our great-grandfather never became a Catholic, and <clears throat> knowing the truth, why did you conceal it? Because you are a Catholic. We are talking now of the religion of my children and being brought up in. I say that your proposal is not a honourable one, and if 
possible, it would be less honourable for me to accept it. Everybody has his own ideas of honour. There is no fixed standard, but it's a very common thing, as you must know, that the parents divided in religious beliefs. Some of the children brought up in one religion, some in another, and it would be difficult to impugn the fairness of such an arrangement. I am prejudiced in favour of the Protestantism for intellectual reasons because my life was moulded on facts rather than upon sentimentalities, and the answer I got from the Colonel was that I looked at the world through a narrow tube and could only see one spot at a time, and that my opinions were always as narrow as a tube, and then getting angrier and angrier, his face bleaching with a passion which I could not help admiring, for at all events he was himself in the scene. He reminded me that I had said I would leave more hall to his children, but no sooner had I said that that I began to impose conditions in beginning they were to learn Irish, that was the condition. From now a new condition was to be imposed that they would have brought up Protestants, not both, only one I protested. And if I pay for his education, you can't accept Expect me to bring up a boy in a religion which I think paralyzes the intelligence. Your concern is with the possibility of a future life, the soul's arrival in purgatory and its subsequent release by the means of the masses paid for the Pope's indulgences and... That's the end of the chapter. Chapter 14. <clears throat> All right, chapter 14. And when on the subsequent occasion my brother told me in answer to a question that I had been paying £50 a year for a jesuit and afterwards £130 a year for the Benedictines and the education of my nephew, I uttered the cry or moan of a man taken with a sudden thickness of sensation the news brought me was, strangely enough, physical, a sort of fainting in very bowels, or else I could not describe it. I wrote to you from Paris offering up to pay for my nephew's education. I said if he were brought up a Protestant, and the answer I got was that my proposal was a dishonourable one. How, then, could you think that I was willing to pay for a Catholic education? And it was been going on a year after year that I was never told. His answer was that he would repay me, and with the transference of some hundreds of pounds from Cox to the National Bank, the question of money would be settled between us, but there is no question of money, I bewailed. I don't care a fig for the money, but the deception, I could not answer him further. The shock of the discovery deprived me of any power of reasoning, and I ascended the stairs, thinking as well as I could that any calamity had been preferable to the one that had befallen me and that I should have been paying for the education of a Catholic while meditating hail and farewell, rankled like salt in a wound, while writing Ave and Salve, I muttered in a deeper sense of unhappiness that I had ever known before began to steal over me as I dragged my feet along the landing to the room in which I was to sleep. I shall get no sleep tonight, I said, raising the blind in the hope that the moon shining on the lake would calm me, and my eyes roved over the dim outlines of the lake into the paley distances, neither blue nor grey. A moment later, the words, He is born Catholic, fell from my lips, and the phrase seemed to me to represent a truth hitherto though unexpected or insufficient appreciated. We do not acquire our religion, we bring it into the world. We are born Catholics or Protestants. Catholicism or Protestantism are attitude of the mind, and I've pondered the question for what seemed a long while awakened suddenly by the thought that if my nephews had a worth, they would discover themselves to be Protestants from 18 or to 21. Is the time when we stick forever to, or find a way out. Every man of worth chooses a religion for him. Himself, and so my money had been wisely wasted, but it has not gone to the moulding of a soul all the same. I would not have had this happen, no, not for all the money in the world, and I fell to thinking how I had laughed and jeered at dear Edward, because he dreaded lest his money might be applied to the production of heretical plays, yet here I was suffering from the same dread. The perfect circle of the moon detained my thoughts a little while, and the lonely castle beneath it set me thinking of savage hordes of Welsh and Irish disputing for possession of the island. 
But however far our thoughts may wander, we are awakened by my old pain. My senses sickened again. The judgment upon me I cried for, having jeered at Edward. And at the words, dear Edward, my thoughts sped away to Beirut and returned to my brother and our childhood. My mind, I said, is like an ever-veering wind, and sleep will be sought in vain. All the same, I must seek help, and all the night long, all the same thoughts revisited me, marching round my brain like prisoners in a yard, high walls and no strip of sky above the multitudinous bricks. Round and round they go, I cried, and in a way my thoughts went again, and off was why I was thinking, and when I fell asleep, I cannot tell. Your bath water is ready, sir. Yes, yes, I answered, and turned over if I could... Only cease to think, but the moment that I cease, shall begin to think again of the pursuits and Benedictines. Of what shall we speak, I asked, in going to the bath, and in the bath, and coming from the bath, I tried to discover subjects of conversations lingering over my dressing, and so advantageously that Evelyn was dispensing tea and coffee, and when I entered into the dining room, and after breakfast, I thanked her kindly when she said, Now, Maurice, won't you take George out and show him the new gateway, which he says he has not seen sufficiently? The colonel murmured some answer, and whilst tussling himself into the old yellow coat, he told me that the part of the ironwork missing from the gates brought to the new brook had been supplied by the smith of the Canakin and had, had been curious to hear if I should be able to distinguish the old from the new. The stonework was complete, all except two knobs these Mikhail Malia would be able to replace, and the cost would be not more than five or ten pounds a knob. His optimism was somewhat dismal, for I never imagined anybody living in Moor Hall again, and after viewing the gateway, which had only cost me forty pounds, we turned down the road to a gateway lodge. Now empty the colonel, having succeeded in expelling the late tenants, his gardener, a gate lodge, I said, is generally beside the gate, but this one is 50 yards away. The colonel declared it to be an excellent house, and I meditated for this gate lodge, was associated in my mind with the many memories. It had a loft which was reached by a ladder, and I had often thought that I would like to sleep in the loft among the hay, and there was a deep drain beyond the garden at the edge of the wood, and down this drain I had often floated on a raft, made out of a plank and shutters from the windows into a deep water onto the bridge, and it was a thrilling experience to find myself on a raft under an arch, but the novelty wore away quickly. And one day I had undertaken a longer voyage, punting the raft down the drain into the lake, but in the lake the punt hole, a branch torn from the tree, had proved insufficient, and the freshing wind had carried me and the raft out into the open lake, and looking on to the colonel I remembered him crying, among the rushes while I debated my chances whether it would be better to remain on the raft, trusting it to carry me to some island or to throw myself from it into the lake in the hope that the water was not deep enough to drown me. The waves leaped higher and higher, threatening to wash the shutters from the plank till at last it became clear that the chance that the water was not deep enough to drown me would have to be accepted. It rose to my chin, lifting me off my feet, and I continued wading, hoping not to stumble into a hole. Yes, I said to the colonel, I had a near escape that day from drowning, and I now I can still see you running along the strand, crying for someone to come and save your brother. If the accident had happened a few years before, he said, you would have been drowned. The lake was deeper, and he told me how in the 60s a young engineer had come down from the broad of works with a project for draining Loch Curra into Loch Mask, but our father had offered such opposition to the scheme that it had been to be abandoned. Up to the seventies, I answered, we are were feudal lords, and he was listened to in the House of Commons when he said that he could not allow a small Sahara to be created before his front door. We controlled our landscapes in those days, or it may have been that the shores of Loch Mask were implicated in this drainage scheme, as likely as not it was discovered that the draining of Loch Karah would inundate the shores of Loch Mask. 
A weir was therefore constructed in the river robe, said the colonel, and his words revived that day I had brought a boat from the Lofkarar to Lofkmask and had put back frightened the great waves of that gloomy lake. Our father saved Lochkara, but it is for certain many feet lower than it used to be. I reminded the colonel that the great pleasure boat about whose rotting planks we often played in childhood, it had been allowed to rot under a group of pines standing some 50 or 60 yards from the lake's edge. By the side of a walled trench, once its harbour for to what other purpose could the walled trench have been put. We often asked our governess our subsequent questions, drifting into dim speculation as to how many pounds it would cost to mend the boat, and if Mickey Murphy could mend it if he were paid ten pounds. This rotting boat appealed to our imaginations, for its seats would hold a dozen or more ladies and gentlemen, and there were rowlocks for eight oars, and the colonel and I were wont to imagine a great picnic party that I sat under the sail, for there was a hole in the seats of the mast, was Castle Hag or Castle Island the destination of these picnic parties, we asked each other, and was there a turkey stuffed with chestnuts in the hamper, we were certain. That there were cakes and fruits and jams in the footman spread a snowy cloth in the glade under the castle wall, the governor's read while we dreamed we did, the colonel dreamed, why if he did, he never told me his dreams, his rest sedent about his dreams, but garrulous about externals, and as we walked round the shores of Lockerar, for the last time he regretted that he had not brought with him the key of the new boathouse and he would like to show me his brother-in-law's boats, rowing boats, skiffs, wherries and steam launch and a yacht, a shrunken lake for a certain, else the reeds would not have thriven. Dash had had to cut the passage through them with for his boats and the colonel unfolded a project whereby the lake might be cleared of reeds and before he had reached the end of his project we were at the bridge that stretches over the Turlow. The Turlow in Mayo is a low-lying field that is flooded in winter, and he pointed out the pump that drew the water from the well in the middle of the lake as well. That old Betty MacDonald told us was once up in Kilt Ohm, but it had suddenly descended and had sprung up in the lake with a ring of grass around it, for it was a holy or maybe a fairy well. She was not quite sure which. The pump had cost me £200, but I had to admit that if people were to live at more hall, a pump was necessary. The walls require mending, I remarked, coming upon a cottage that my father had built, but had never put a roof on, and I added a ruin that will supply excellent material for the building of the necessary walls. But the colonel shared, said... There was plenty of stone and no need either to pull down the cottage or to roof it. The walls were probably too rotten to bear a roof, and speaking of the congested district's board, he said they even asked for the paddock and the field behind the cottage. The fields beyond the gate were Cora and the new gardens, Lofka and Novo, Roach Town, and our father's race course on which he had trained Corona, Wolf Dog, Anonymous, Crow Patrick, and Master George, not to number a few of his famous horses, and all these fields the congested district board required, so that the holdings of three tenants might be extended, the colonel said, if you yield, more hall will be no more than a villa in the midst of the wild country cottages within the woods right up against Kiltoom, and who can say that pigsties will not be built? The present cottages would probably prevent the pigs from running in the graveyard in the cottage of the 50 years. Hence will be scruples the board will insist on acquiring all the land up into Kilmore on their own pace, and if you refuse to sell the board, may refuse to buy your other estates, bolt into Tubo, and those in the Galway and Russ Common. Very serious matter for you if your board refuse to buy. How is that? The next move to the board will be to stir up the tenants and combine the combined campaign against rent, like putting a stick into a wasp's or a with deep anger in his voice. So far as I understand, the proposal is to leave you, Darren Mush. 
We returned to Moor Hall and so gloomy were our thoughts that we turned aside instinctively from the dark road and ascended to the steeple and together. My dear Maurice, Moor Hall was built in feudal times. Read about the tablet over the balcony in 1790. The feudalism continued down to 1870. A big square house on a hill to which your presence came every morning to work. You remember the bell that hung over the laundry and rang at seven and before it ceased clanging and the labourers Assembled all forbidden to the day's work, and the shilling of the day was fine wages in those good times. And you remember the women coming from the village, and the husbands, and the brothers, and diners, half a dozen boiled potatoes in a cloth, and a great dinner it was for them, and not a noggin, and a buttermilk from a cook. They ate their potatoes and drank their buttermilk under the hawthorn hedge in the butter and back out, and it was day, and were fine, and if it weren't, it were wet in byre or stable. The young men wore corduroy trousers and frieze coats and the old men in knee breeches and tall hats and red petticoat hung in the women's knees and they were printed handkerchief round their heads and we were kings in those days, little kings, but kings for all that with the power of life and death and we had been seen truly with four often sundered wife and husband, sitting best sister and brother and often drove away in the whole village in America if it pleased us to grow beef and mutton in the English market. And in those days, the peasants were afraid of the hats and of collars unless their rent should be raised. Nor was the one peasant in the village in our tower hill villages worth a ten pound note. The colonel asked me if I remember a cabin in the middle of an annoyed bug and dwelling hardly suited for an animal, but yet a man and a woman lived there and her children were born in it. I answered him, we used to pass into walks and we used you and I in the governor's, yes, I remember. And I remember one day I'm up in the mountains of wild gusts, shooting, stabling my horse in a man's cabin, but we shall never be able to do that again. The landlords have had their day. We are a disappearing class. Our lands are being confiscated. Our land houses are decaying and being pulled down and build cottages for the folk. All that was gone or is going more whole represents feudalism. I think that anybody who would like to live in a comfortable house, dash square rooms and lofty passages can form the ideas of the ascendants of jerry-built villas, all gambles, red tiles, mock beams, stand for modern taste and modern comfort of hot water and every landing and electric light. Nobody wants a real house unless an American millionaire and it is not because of his reality that he wants it but for unreality it is unreal to him and having a great deal of money indulges in eccentricity in a way in the world is carried out on the Americans and even in England there is a few houses that are the capitals of the estate that stand in more hall than it was 50 years ago more hall is out of date and astonished me that I don't feel that I wish that I could feel it and summon sufficient courage to pull it down and sell it but it would make excellent rubble for the builders laborers cottages if and if I could I would cut down every tree in the Lay the hillside bare, why not, since I know it will be laid bare a few years after my death. The fate that overtook Ashbrook hangs in muck loon. It will be given over to peasants like Ashbrook. You remember the piece of tapestry that woven the Ashbrook by our great-grand-aunt and grandmother is now an exhibition in the South Kensington Museum. I wonder how long it will be there before another piece of tapestry like it is woven in Mayo in the dining room hangs a portrait of a lady with a dog painted by a young girl in Galloway. There's so one in Galloway who knows it would paint as well no with all our so-called culture sculpture painting architecture out of a use of words are disappearing by the way morris i don't know whether you have learned or heard of my theory the age of art is over for as much as the stone age people have always been saying he answered that the age of art is over i could cite you many passages of the elizabethan writers in which they deplored the decline of the art in the english language they were wrong i replied that is all but i cannot be denied that there was certain there was neither art nor literature in Europe in the Middle Ages, for nor the sixth, shall we say, or the twelfth century, the colonel answered me that the art cannot flourish in the midst of the innovations, and he began Rome was sacked by Alcaeo in the fifth century, and in the seventh century Europe was overrun by Huns. Headed by Attila and century later, Saracens invaded Europe and was defeated by the French Battle of the Tours and walked towards the house, explaining that if the defeat had not taken place we might all be Mohemians now. Mohammedans now. But 
Do you think the sleep of the Mahomedanism is a deeper sleep than the sleep of the Catholicism? I beg your pardon for introducing a religious question. You appreciated the trends of the past, but it seemed blind of the person to I cannot help being sorry for my poor country that has never been able to show a brave face to the world. Some extraordinary curse seems to have been laid upon his land in the 10th century or about that time. Ireland was something then, and she had a religion of her own. She was inventing an art of her own, but up to the 10th century, it looked as if God intended to do something for Ireland. And in the 10th and 11th century, he changed his mind and ever since the curse seems to have been de- deepening in another 50 years ireland will have lost all the civilization of the 18th century and it will be a swamp of peasants with the priest here and there the exaltation of sacraments and whiskey her lot and a hundred legislators unite only in protecting monkeries and nunneries for secular inquisition the colonel did not agree with me that the gentry were dying and the mayor the browser of the brochure and the lynches of the party that have been building lately my dear maurice we will you will not see things as they are or is it that you don't remember mayor in the days of the gentry as ireland as I do. Athy Valley is empty, and you told me that the old peasant had searched for traces of Brown Hall, but could find none. Ballonfard is a monastery. The Blakes are still in Tower Hill, and at last, Lynch's lives his lonely life in Clocher. Cornfield is empty, and will be pulled down very soon. The Knox have left Craiger. New book is sold, and the masonry distributed. Part of it is at the end of the drive. Brownstone House was burnt before our time, but not much before it. How many more? The Lamberts are gone. What... What's the name of their place? Brook something? Every class has its ups and downs, and there is no doubt that ours are going through a crisis. No crisis whatsoever. We have lived our day. That is all. And in 30 years we shall be, as I have said, an extinctist the dojo, unless religion comes to our aid. You will uh, seem to have heard of the new French party, the Catholic Atheists. Religion is to be taught again in the hope that the man be persuaded to forego the joy of a woman's bosom for the sake of Abraham's, the colonel laughed, but he was not pleased. In the break, the irritating silence, he told me that the castle car had been sold to congested districts, bought and out of the arch, built during the famine, and a row of concrete cottages had been run up according to specifications. The old deer park will supply some material. I said the jungle will be grubbed up. You will get rid of the goats, and we talked on this fashion after dinner, resumed the same talk, saying the same things over and over again, and when we ascended the stairs to our beds about 11 o'clock, the colonel promised to drive me to the Leland's monastery next day. Leland Blake is my uncle, my, uncle's young, my mother's uncle's brother, and he came into the property of Bellenford on the death of Joe Blake, famous in the country of Mayo, and the race horses and a love story. Joe seems to have been the only one in the family whose soul did not trouble him. His brother Mark, for whom he inherited the property in Bellenford, was a fine old country rake, leaving samples of his voice and demeanour and the appearance in every village and going to Dublin to represent his sins, attaining to the last years of his life spectacular appearance of Father Christmas. Causing much annoyance in the chapels and a frequented this incurable habit of interrupting the service with O oh Lord, O oh Lord, my unfortunate soul Lulun is as tall as his brother Mark, two or three inches over the fixed feet, large in proportion with sloping shoulders, snapping his words and out of the relapsing in silence. He used to be much admired at dances in the drawing rooms of Marion and Fitzwilliam Squares and in the old royalty theatre he patronised the muse to for but those days are over and done with, and like his brother Mark, he has come uneasy about his soul. He has warmed Alvid's disease by me years ago, and he paid no heed of my warnings and convinced of its continuous existence that his priests can help him to save it. He has found in a monastery I should do the same if I were a Roman Catholic, but the colonel, who is one, would have me try to prevent the founding of the monastery by action at law, and I am still trying to understand the colonel who believes in the efficacy of masses for the dead, but seems to think that Luland's relations should come from before his soul, a most impossible colonesque 
argument, and the spirit fumed within me to express my point of view, but I put chains upon my spirit, and Karnakun went by for the last time. <laughs> Excuse me. We were on the heights of Balagas when the struggling spirit sundered its last fetters, and I said, How is it you disapprove of the monastery? It seems to me that you should, on the contrary, urge me to found another at Moor Hall. You believe the masses for the dead will get your soul out of purgatory. If you don't, you are not a Catholic. Now, why shouldn't we have a little plump of monasteries in Mayo at Moor Hall? We have uh, have Benedictines and Cloger, Franciscans, Lynch and Roman Catholic has no children. We would better do a town hall. Some arrangements might be to come with you and the Blakes with the Trappists. You don't know what order in the balance of the colonel answered. Suddenly I was not sure whether Lillian had found an admission house in a monastery. Well, no matter this plump of monasteries sending out prayers for your soul, Lillian's soul, and to soul. And for the souls of Tower Hill and the prayers bringing down the archangels, constantly crooks in the hands, pulling you one after the other out of the purgatory. The Father and Son and the Holy Ghost, nectar perpetually in Tapak or Ellis, and never wear out a rich prospect before you all. And our uncle smiled, deliberately introduced, provided the colonel's space and it was as plenty as words and how very superficial you are vulgar quite vulgar my dear friend I'm sorry for bringing up this question again it is the fault of Lillenbeke Count Lillenbeke he has been made count of the papal state said the colonel but why laugh in his eyes the pope is not only spiritual but a temporal power his title is more valid than any other don't you think so the colonel never answers these questions and while wondering uh, at my own detestable character and thus plaguing him I looked round the fields they seem very small and dim yet I said the glimmer of the light of falling across the fields will remind us that summer is coming the fine days will be a general illusion but the ray of lights and dim every landscape is a herald we believe in this principal thing peasants stood in the door in the roadway in the front of the car and the colonel had to pull up long life to your honour cried the old man in his eyes I read the reverence of your and he was a hairy and boisterous fellow we had to listen to his description of the house which you have seen was damp and not kind of wild duck rooms and my pride with how it made him but good but good speed god speed I said which was probably for eternity we were very late the colonel muttered it was unlucky meeting him but don't say that it is a plan the middle literature in the road of the balance and balance the road loped around the shoulder of the hill beyond the go straight bridge and viaduct and spy the gap of the bottom but the said to the colonel I am afraid of this gate is always like a block you will train over Bishop's train thousand times i will see you learn his monastery you will certainly miss your train it is two miles around two irish miles he pulled up and rusty before the great the bounding out of the trap i shook it it was locked but it was a style beside it we can see in the trap around the gate the other gate and nearby two miles of the station we walked up to the house yes what can you do he said and then he let us do it for a little mission house at the monastery before more hole barford was the colonel answered and he told the bakes he kept the property through the penal laws by the special held of ground with him by charles to the card of the astronomy that is still persevering i asked an old comely woodland word going to give the most max grove in which i said it would be easy to imagine the routes of nymphs and setters otho is praying the goat heard to seat himself on the shoulder and the great oak and a pipe to him. Delightful woods, and whilst talking to the Amaryllis Salis and Servus, some twenty or thirty youths passed across the land, and having need to overtake them for the inquiry, we called to the shepherd who stopped his flock. He told us that we should find father within, and on the house coming into the view, I said, I always had a strange porch, so out of keeping it is with the landscape. The colonel answered that the house was built by our grandfather, Morris Blake, and the soldier who had served in the peninsula, and the porch was probably an imperfect Memory of the one that's in Italy in the way is home. No attempt, I said, and he has been made and given to the house. And the ecclesiastical, yeah, the ecclesiastical changes will come later on, the colonel replied, and he expounded one more to the complex question of the Luland's rights under his father's will, and it continued to expound in whilst I looked round to the drawing room in which my mother and her sisters had concernedly played, a selection of Norma, and in which Joe had strummed his memories of Trevita and Travoto for biddies and Nivorism in amusement. The remembered pictures were still on the walls, setters creeping off the birds, probably grouse, and I began to peer into the painting like a Bond Street dealer, for the approach of the priest was always set to me, murmuring the door opened, and the young man of sleek speech and Carl's begged us to be sitting and choosing a comfortable chair for himself, and he's tossing himself and discovered his easier cornea. 
He thought as the large number of the last batch of missionaries went over to West Africa had died and the climate being unhealthy, but another batch was going out shortly, and he hoped not to lose so many. And did those that died pray for the soul of Count Lulin Blake? He hoped that they had done so for the Count Lulin Blake had a great deal and had put in the kind of soul and the heavy tax upon the population of May or something like 17 or 16, 30, 36 having died. We asked him some questions regarding the possibility of converting savages to a more rational spirituality than that which they practice in the forest. We met with a great many difficulties, first and foremost the unwillingness of the men to relinquish their wives. I asked if any provision was made made for the abandoned wives. The young men admitted that they had not thought out that side of the question. The child, I answered, offer you a fairer field. Yes, we tried to get hold of the children, he answered, and after some conversation with me about the climate of Africa being answerable for much of the faith in the savages and their superstitions, the young priest turned to the colonel and ventured to express a hope that he would come over again to Moor Hall to see them, bringing his two little boys with him, Father Zimmerman, who is at present in Switzerland. He said, we'll be back in Ballinford at the end of the month. The whole scheme is intimately associated with Father Zimmerman, the colonel said, on our way to the stables, a very different man from the one we have seen. But how can he be different and continue the traffic he is engaged in? I cannot associate a man from his work as you do. A man is his work. In the stables we were met for some Joe Blake's hurlings, stablemen of the old time, and see the cracks of the current and the lament into the change in the forest priest, they said, came to the Irishman away to Africa and to whom Count Lulin had met a Ballinfad some two or three years ago and when ordered Jimmy Glynn to read, ready the dining room for the mass, they began to have a notion of what was going to happen. The tenants too had got wind of the change and were waiting at the hall asking how much of the land the Count was going to make over the Swiss boyo who was up the height of the ankles in carpets before he took up with religion literature again. I was bitten, listened with glee to the tale of how the Swiss boy and the Count had escaped through the garden, but were caught up at Lake Mount, brought to bay, and how getting round them, the peasants had sworn that every one of them would turn Protestant if any bloody monks were put into Bell and Fudd. The rain that came towards us aslant over the bog, was in our faces, and with large drops running down my nose, I continued the monks and Lulin anxiety about his soul may well bring about the revival of Christianity. You heard them say they would turn Protestant. I think the word Protestant was a sop for you, the colonel answered. The rain splashed in our faces, making conversation difficult, and when it ceased, I heard the colonel's voice saying from underneath his Macintosh, I should like to outwit Lulin. It is very difficult for me to understand you, for you are not moved by any means of the sense of funeral pecuniary loss for yourself. Your fingers do not itch to clutch family. Feeling is strong in you, stronger in me. No one could be more shocked than you when I told you that I had heard the exorcistics had gotten Howth Castle and the disappearance of Balanfart affects you in the same way, yet you contrive to reconcile the marriage of the course of the detestation of the result. For, of course, as long as priests can persuade people that masses for the dead will get their souls out of purgatory, they will continue to despoil their relations. The rain is coming again, the colonel interjected. And if the train isn't late, we shall miss it. At every hill I asked how far we were from the station, the train was late, and walking up the platform I grew so bitter about Catholicism that he at last said, a religion at all events that has made more converts than any other, the witless and hysterical ladies who have been through the divorce courts and young men with filthy careers behind them. The train steamed in and the porter cried first class behind, Would you like to have your hat box in the carriage with you? Yes, I answered mechanically and jumped into the train, glad to escape from the wrangle that had become unendurable. The colonel had said the night before last that we had better not see each other and though the words seemed hard, I could not resist their truth for it was indeed a relief to get away from him. Catholics and Protestants don't mix 
Catholics. We are never comfortable in the society of Catholics. The guard blew his whistle. The train moved up the platform. The colonel passed out of sight, and I said, so this is the end. He thinks that I have changed. We both have changed, and the fault is neither with him nor with me. He was born a papist, and this is the end. Unendurable words, if we have given all our love, and thinking how much I had lost, I sat looking out in the wet fields of Mayo. So this is the end, I cried, scaring a fellow passenger who looked at me askance over his newspaper. He returned to his paper to I to my thoughts, which were no longer with the colonel, but with myself. In which direction does my life lie? I asked. My mission in Ireland is over, and there is little casual visiting in Paris. I shall write less and read more, and a large book containing the 36 plays will never be out of my hand. At the prospect of becoming another Sir Sidney Lee, Paris began to recede, and I remember that Steer and Tonks and Sickert lived in London. Uh, I shall have to spend my evenings alone unless I join a club. Bayreuth falls only every second year, and the concerts at the Queen's Hall are often common enough. St. Sands and Dvorak are often played, and a private orchestra is beyond my means. But with a piano, a piano demands a wife, and with one who can play Schumann, Schubert, Wagner, Chopin, and Liszt, the evenings would go by happily in a excellent cigar in my mouth, my stern, in my comfortable armchair. Had I married Doris, I should have an hour and a half of music every evening, and if the rule of were maintained for several years, we should get through the vast pile of chamber music. I have a taste for Scarlatti, and if this admirable woman who can play or bark were to bear me a child... He would inherit his mother's musical ear, and it is not likely that my son would lack inventive faculty and sense of composition, and while watching the musical instinct developing in him, my heart will be filled with joy, and I shall look forward to hearing all the ridiculous and uncouth strains that have tempered the deceived me reduced to shape, but not in sympathies. I... My son will write operas, the words as well as the music, for I should like him to inherit as much of my literary gifts as will enable him to construct a poem on which to weave the wolf, but no more. I love that he actually still at this point thinks he has literary gifts. He is the worst writer in the history of writers. I hope to for God that his son does not inherit any literary anything from this man. My thoughts were away in a jiffy in France with a German musical idiom in worn rags, but there is musical atmosphere in France, and I remember the great stone bridge and fishermen sitting in the quays, keys, their legs hanging over the side. I had watched their floats being carried down by the current last year and had seen them lift their floats out of the current and drop them again and had waited, pretending to myself that I would like to see fish rise, but really interested in the adventure that I knew to be at my heels, an empty fly came by and the driver asked if he might take me to Chinon. It <clears throat> seems as if I heard heard the name and feeling Chinon to be my adventure, I jumped in the carriage and was driven along a road of which I remember nothing except a steep hill at the top of the feudal castle in ruins. Our poor little horse could hardly drag us up the hill and the coachman turned in his seat and began to relate some history, but at that moment my eyes were taken up by the post of representing a house or castle, I was not sure which, an extravagant painting it was post-imperialism, I said, at Chinon, and dismissing the driver I applied to an old man sitting by the side of the gate, his shaggy dog beside him for information. French stuff, French stuff, French stuff, French stuff, I said to myself, and I followed the old man round the enclosure, amused by the pomp with which he had vaunted the excellence of his grapes, and the courtesy with which he invited my admiration of the pears and peaches ripening on the southern wall. I had seen fine peaches and pears at home, but never flowers like 
Silk gathered in a rosette, and seeing that I was genuinely ignorant, he told me that the tree in question was a grenadier, and trying to remember what a grenadier was in English, I stood admiring the roofs of Chunron under the hill. French stuff, French stuff, French stuff, and he looked at me interrogatively and regretfully, for the old man was 70, French stuff. French stuff, I answered mechanically, French stuff, dot dot dot, French stuff, French stuff, and he led me down into a pit which had... He had digged in the centre of the enclosure and pointed out to me great many stones and broken arches, French stuff, and I learned from him that these stones had once formed part of the castle, that it was here that Henry of Algeu, Henry II of England, had died in the altar steps and that the house I had in mind with the old carvings he had stacked by the hut in which he had his dog lived let me walk would not cost me more than a hundred thousand pounds to build. He asked me if I would like to see his pictures, for when he was not spraying his vines, he was painting scenes from the life of Joan of Arc in distemper, and spraying vines had become hard work. He was 75 and wished to finish his paintings before he died. French stuff? Why not? And now, with the advent of my new idea, a musician was the legitimate end of my life. The Clos St. George began to acquire a new and potent significance. She and the boy and the vineyard will be the pear and the peach, the apricot, the nectarine, the bottle of wine from my own vineyard. My life will have to end somewhere. Why not in Clos St. George? Because hail and farewell must be written, a voice answered from within. Before the vineyard could be purchased and the house built, hail and farewell must be finished. Ave was in the publisher's hand. A good deal of salve was written, and... There was a sketch, chapter for chapter, down to the very end, and between Mullingate and Dublin I realised more acutely than I had ever done before that Hale and Farewell could not be abandoned for a vineyard. I have been led to write it by whom I know not, but I have been led by the hand like a little child, and it was, boy, you should have taken the vineyard, my dude. You should have taken the vineyard. And it was borne in upon me at the same time that sacrifice was demanded of me, by whom I knew not for not for what purpose, but I felt I must leave my native land and my friends for the sake of the book, a work of liberation I divided to be, liberation from ritual priests, a book of precept and examples, a turning point in Iron's destiny, and yet I prayed that I might be spared the pain of writing it and permitting permitted instead to acquire the Clos St. George, a wife and a son, but no man escapes his fate. Something was propelling me out of Ireland, whether I was not yet sure. I must yield to instinct, I said to Aya. He was deeply moved. You are going away from us to spend your evenings with steer and tonks, but where shall I spend mine? It may grieve you to lose me, dear A.E., and it grieves me to lose you. I shall never find anybody like you again. A.E. is only found once in a lifetime. You will not forget me, he said, grasping my hand. The next night we met at Bailey's, the land commissioner who lives at Ellsford Terrace. I had gained his friendship in the last year of the sojourn in Ireland and found his alert and witty mind so pleasant that I had begun to think it a pity. I had let him go by unknown for so many years. Bailey knows a good picture and buys one occasionally. He reads books and has practiced literature and will probably practice it again someday. He will write... His memoirs, and better still, he practices life going away every year for long travel to return to Ireland. His mind enriched. He had not influenced me in my life as A.E. or John Eglinton or Yeats. And to speak of him here is a little outside of my subject, but if I close this book without mention of him, it would seem that I had forgotten the many hours we passed together. Besides... His dinner party is fixed in my mind. He assembled all my friends, A.E., Ernst Longworth, Philip Hansen, John Healy, John Eglinton, the graceful and witty Deanna Tyrell, and Susan Mitchell, who sang songs about the friends I was leaving behind me on a grey windless morning in February. The train took me to Kingstown, and I had always looked forward to leaving Ireland in May. 
seeking the words of Alas for a while or murmuring the words of Catalus when he journeyed over land and sea to burn the body of his brother, fitting them to my circumstance by the change of a single word. I think that's Latin. But our dreams and circumstances are often in conflict and never were they in greater opposition than the day the train took me from Westland Row past a long barren tract of sand, grey sky hanging low over the sea away from the offering without a ripple upon it. If the evening had been a golden evening, my heart might have overflowed with fine sentiments, for it is a golden evening that fine sentiments overflow in the heart. The heart is then like crystal. Then the last touch will break, but on a cold, bleak February morning, the prophet is uninspired as his noblest, humblest fellow... And the very humble fellow forgets of Ireland, forgetful of Catholicism, forgetful of literature, went below to think of the friends he had left behind him, A.E. and the rest. End of Hail and Farewell by George Moore. That's the end of the book. Uh, just peters out. To the fuck it. That's, a, that's fucking atrocious. That's fucking atrocious. I cannot believe how bad that is. That's the end of, that's, that's the end of the book. That's how the book ends. That's how the Hemingway list ends with that. <laughs> George Moore, you fucking idiot. Um, when he says, like, you know, he was going to get a farm and a son and a wife and play music for the rest of his life, but no, there's a greater calling. He must write this book. <laughs> I'm so glad that he missed out on having a happy family and all that because he didn't deserve any happiness because he wrote the dumbest book ever and I hate him. Bye. That's the end. See you tomorrow. Actually, no. I won't see you tomorrow. Uh, Have a good whatever. Bye.